Welcome and thank you for clicking play on the first ever Oniswar podcast. An experiment more than anything. Have you ever had a crush on a tutor at university? Or better, have you ever had a sexual relationship with one? The story about to hear is partly about sex and intimacy, but more importantly it's about what happens when you fall through the cracks, when the sex and the intimacy turn into something much, much darker. The podcast this week is based on a story first published this year by Georgia Kriz. And just a note, the names in this story have been changed. From the first time I stepped into her class, I knew I wanted to fuck her. That's Alice. She's 21, an art student at Sydney Uni and one of my closest friends. She has good grades, enjoys running, has a steady part-time office job and, last semester, she fucked one of her tutors. There was a pretty mutual and obvious attraction from the beginning. We flirted from almost the very first class of the semester. Everything kicked off in earnest when Alice's tutor emailed her about an assessment. I was late in submitting my first assignment and she emailed me to check up on me. She tried to casually weave in something about her personal life, referenced how her PhD was going, got the conversation started. I replied with a little bit of information about myself. Things just kind of developed from there. After emailing daily for a few weeks, as well as seeing each other in class, one evening, Alice and her tutor met up for a drink off campus. They fell into a sexual relationship after that night. I really liked her and there was this definite acute thrill about the whole thing. I was like, wow, this is what university should be like. She was 10 years older than me, super intelligent. We had great sex. I guess it felt really cool. But after a few months of this secret sex and just after the semester ended, Alice broke it off with her tutor. Her feelings had changed. I definitely became less attracted to her once she wasn't my tutor anymore. Plus, I started developing feelings for someone else, so there wasn't anything left to tie me to her. But this put Alice in an awkward position. She'd opened herself up to something that she hadn't counted on, that something might happen to her grades, that the affair might have adversely affected her future at the university. I was really lucky in that sense. She was hurt and upset, but she's honestly a really kind human. And although she could have presumably fucked me over in some academic sense, she didn't. Fuck, though, if something bad had happened, I wouldn't have known what to do or who to report it to. Is something like this even reportable to the university? When she said this, I realised I didn't really know the answer either. At the beginning, I'd planned to research students just like Alice. Students who had fun, sexy stories to tell about their adventures in Introduction to Tutor Sex 1001. I idealised it as like juicy but light-hearted, revealing but never too serious. Part of me felt like maybe sex between staff and students was an inevitable and normal part of a university experience. After all, students are often close to their tutors in age, share similar interests. They're encouraged to engage in genuine and collegial relationships. Maybe, I thought, it was hardly surprising that these relationships sometimes cross the line of flirtatious and continue along into the sexual. Of course, there are power dynamics at play, but they are not so different from those within many kinds of relationships we deem to be normal. In my optimism, I reasoned that the tutor-student version was not so different. Flawed, 
but formed between two consenting adults capable of intelligently assessing their own emotions and desires. I know now that that was naive of me. Sex is rarely ever so simple. By the time I'd finished the research for this story, I'd come to realise how incredibly lucky Alice was. It's now sadly and awfully clear to me that at the University of Sydney, sex between staff and students can go horrifically wrong, and that too often, sexual harassers and abusers are protected by a combination of bureaucratic incompetence, toothless policies, and administration intent on willfully ignoring a broken, misogynistic, and violent university culture. For Anna, it started innocuously enough. I added him on Facebook, almost just to see what would happen. She had a crush on her tutor for the entire semester he was teaching her. She'd joke with her friends, oh my god, imagine if we dated, and says she flirted with him on and off. By the end of the semester, she was ready to make a move. He messaged me, asked to meet up with me at night. I was in my first year of university, first semester of uni, and here I was being asked on a date by my really hot tutor. Of course I went. Anna and her tutor spent the night together drinking and partying in the city. In the early hours of the morning, they ended up on a beach in the eastern suburbs. It was then that he made his move. We were making out and then he just started rubbing his erection all over me, tried to take my clothes off and tried to shove his hands inside me. I told him I actually really didn't want to have sex. He told me he actually really did and covered my mouth to try to keep me quiet. Anna fought him off and ran to the main road. He called after her. You're a really cool chick. Can we do this again sometime? She hailed a cab and took it home, shaking. But that wasn't the end of it. Soon after, he started messaging Anna. Every day. We're talking pages and pages of stuff. He told me he loved me, he needed me, he wanted me, he couldn't live without me. He'll tell me when he saw something that reminded me of him. That was surprisingly frequently. The messages went on for three years. The worst ones were when he sent me something insinuating that he knew where I lived. He followed me a couple of places and messaged me details of that. They just kept coming. Wait, did you ever think about reporting him? Like, surely you wanted it to stop? I think the saddest bit is that I didn't want to take it seriously after two or three years. You want sex with your tutor to be this cool university experience. You don't want it to be traumatic. I played it off to people as like a, lol, look at this creepy tutor texting me again type of thing, as though I loved the attention. Anna doesn't know where her tutor is now, or if he is still employed by the university, or if he's still studying there. He was completing his second degree at the time she knew him. It scares her. I don't think I was the first student this happened to, and so I don't think I was the last. He would always allude to others. The messages have now stopped. Here's the thing. Had Anna wanted to report her tutor to the university, it's likely that he would have been found to have been in breach of the institution's harassment and discrimination policy, which says that all staff, students and affiliates at the university have a right to work or study in an environment that is free from unlawful harassment and discrimination. Any uh, educational organisation is liable for a staff member sexually harassing a student unless they can prove that they have severed their vicarious liability by taking all reasonable steps to prevent harassment from occurring. Dr Belinda Smith, Associate Professor at the Sydney University Law School, 
is an expert in organisational sexual harassment and gender equity legislation. If they want to protect themselves from legal risk, organisations have to have procedures in place. She told me that, under federal anti-discrimination and harassment laws, the university has an obligation to protect both its staff and its students from sexual harassment and to have a policy just like this one. She explained to me that these procedures may include internal guidelines and codes of conduct, grievance processes, conciliation sessions, and ultimately, in many cases, reserving the right to fire or expel perpetrators. I looked up Sydney Uni's harassment complaints resolution procedure. It's six very short steps long. A body called the Staff and Student Equal Opportunity Unit is responsible for overseeing the process, which is nebulously described using phrases such as obtain all relevant information and appropriate avenues of support and advice. I can't help but chuckle when I read step six. Simply, monitor developments and resolution outcomes. When I told Dr Smith how vague the university's procedures are, she seemed genuinely shocked. I'm surprised there aren't more toothy outcomes. I wonder whether... All they've got is vague conciliation process and they're lacking concrete expulsion or firing mechanisms. Samantha's experience suggests that that might be the case. Last year, she was the student at the centre of the now infamous Alexander Wright scandal. After finding out that Wright, who was a UCID student employed by the university as a residential assistant, had taken sexually explicit photos of her without her consent and shared them amongst his friends, she reported him to student services. She says she realised the university administration didn't care for her welfare from the very beginning of what became an incredibly protracted and convoluted process. I had a meeting with Adina Rax. That's the university's head of student affairs. And Geordie Austin. Director of student support services. When I asked them if Alex would be expelled, they said no straight away. They said it wasn't the university's responsibility. They were like, if you get hurt in a public place, you don't go contacting the council. After Samantha's requests for mediation, counselling and other support services were consistently denied or mishandled, she decided to go to the media. For those who don't know, Samantha first contacted the Sydney Morning Herald, who published her story first in late October of 2014. She then contacted Onisoir, which published a series of articles detailing what precisely had happened, as well as an editorial calling for the university to act. It's all on the website. That's when it blew up. The resulting furor completely changed the way the university responded to the case. Wright was fired from his position at the university and suddenly the administration was taking Samantha seriously. But it didn't stop there. I even got a meeting with the vice-chancellor. He was totally shocked about what had happened and he promised me so much. Notes on my academic transcript explaining why I'd failed so many classes. An in-depth review into sexual harassment at the university. A special advisor to help me transition back to uni. But more than six months on, things have cooled. Samantha still hasn't seen any of those promises come to fruition. This made me so angry. I couldn't believe this had all still materially resulted in very little. Samantha said that she felt the same way, but she added that the worst part is something much worse. Because the university refused to expel Wright, she still has to see him on campus. It's so scary because he is around and I know he is there. It's the paranoia of not, of not feeling safe. I have no way of making sure I feel safe on campus. They didn't even offer mediation, let alone take steps to expel him. They've essentially said that they tolerate this type of behaviour. My friend Alice was lucky. She was lucky because she had a caring, consensual relationship with another adult who also happened to be in a position of responsibility at the university she attended. She was lucky 
because there was no assault or harassment involved and the power imbalance in her sexual relationship with her tutor was never turned against her. She was lucky because she never had to turn to a broken system for help, only to get swallowed up by it. But the vast majority of the women I spoke to, the unlucky ones, had relationships with staff that went wrong. What's worse is they fell headlong into a regulatory twilight, where rules reached awkwardly and codes of conduct were applied haphazardly. This university needs to draw concrete, bold lines between what is wrong and what is not, and consequences need to be clear-cut and serious. Grey areas are not acceptable when it comes to sexual harassment and assault. I called Alice after I finished my research for this feature and told her how lucky she was. I told her what happened to all those other women whose stories began not dissimilarly to hers. No one should have to rely on luck. Of course, she's right. In an ideal world, all sex should be safe. But if it comes down to it, if you are unlucky, you'd like to think that you could rely on the University of Sydney. If you've ever experienced sexual harassment or assault by anyone on campus, staff or student, there are people you can turn to for support. The New South Wales Rape Crisis Centre is available for 24-hour counselling. The university itself offers student support services. The SRC has caseworkers whom you can speak to in absolute confidence. This week's podcast was adapted from a story originally written for Oniswa by Georgia Criz called Make Her Life Hell. And you can read more about the Alexander Wright saga as well as the university's response at oniswa.com. If you listened to the end of this podcast and you liked it, you should let us know. Hit us up on Twitter, Facebook, or email us with your thoughts, criticism, or praise. We'd like to keep producing these next year, but we want to know what you think. But for now, thanks for listening, and see you next time.